This is the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast, session number 150. Igor Ledahovsky on Calibrating the Hypnotic Journey. Welcome to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast with Jason Lynette, your professional resource for hypnosis training and outstanding business success. Here's your host, Jason Lynette. Break out the party hats. It's session number 150 of the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast series. Number 150, episode number one came out about three and a half years ago. Uh, session number one was all about my all positive pre talk, and uh, that actually came out on June 25th, 2014. And here we go three and a half years later with number 150 coming out on February 8th, 2018. So first of all, a huge thank you to everybody who's been a guest on this program, all of you who have left reviews for it online, shared the content to date. We've been downloaded more than 200,000 times all around the world. Uh, and very much a big part in terms of bringing people into my online communities that I run, the invite to speak at many hypnosis Conventions, even giving the keynote at several of them in 2017. But stick around, we got even more cool stuff coming your way. And there's been a theme of setting benchmarks and uh, sort of changing up the model in terms of how we do things. The origin story behind the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast really dates back to what I believe was a line out of uh, Vaudeville Entertainment that the amateur changes their act, the professional changes their audience. So there's the theme of thinking bigger, reaching out to new audiences in a brand new way, that the hypnotic profession is one that used to cling to the statement that you really have to be in the room for it to be effective, whether it's working with a client, whether it's being the student in the class, when looking at the landscape of our hypnotic profession in 2018, there's times where I'm here in my office where I'm currently recording, and yes, I'm speaking to you. Some of you are all around the world, but by the wonders of the little camera on my laptop, interacting with a client the other side of the world as well, producing that change at a very, very remote distance inside of my programs, hypnotic business systems, hypnotic workers, that there's people inside of there in countries that I haven't even traveled to and we haven't yet met in person. And this is not to say that the model of the live training or especially the hypnotic convention is going away. No, it's absolutely not. But it's this benefit that we get to cultivate that relationship. We get to build that knowledge in a much more direct way to then take our skills to even greater levels. So it's why I've specifically calibrated and uh, changed around the order of some recordings to make it a point to have none other than Igor Ledahovsky on here for session number 150. One of those people who's been a true pioneer of taking hypnosis and NLP and all of our related skills out to a much bigger audience. So this whole concept that the world has become a whole lot smaller. Uh, my first interaction with Igor actually came about probably the same way that many of you first interacted with him as well, by way of a product. So purchasing some sort of CD series or DVD series and just the amount of content, the amount of information and just the quality of training that's inside of it, that I'd be very open and inspired a lot of what I do, which the story here is that he and I first met in person back at HypnoThoughts 2016 out in Vegas, and then a few months later getting a rather polite email from someone on his staff as he does a series of interviews 
interviews called the Hypnosis Masters Interview Series. And back in January 2018, I had the great honor of being invited to be a part of that program. We recorded three specific interviews, one on my backstory, one on my business approach, one on my hypnotherapy approach. And uh, stick around because I'm going to give you some details in terms of how you can get that full three, maybe four plus hours of recording. Uh, the first segment of it is for free on his website, hypnosistrainingacademy.com, though I've got permission to share the entire thing with you, and I'll give you the details here in a moment. In this conversation with Igor, we actually rewind the story back in terms of how he first got interested in hypnosis, of looking at it as that kind of Jedi mind trick, and then realizing that this is a thing that actually can be learned, and a thing that can actually be uh, perfected and built within a skill, and then, of course, shared with others. So you're going to hear some rather interesting nuances, of course, to how we interact with our clients. And I'd share you're going to hear the anecdote that there's always the game as I'm having these conversations with fellow people in my uh, community here. Uh, we're looking for a title. Um, and he may have uh, self-selected the title first draft of Igor Shuts Up About Hypnosis, which instead we changed it to be Igor Ledahovsky on Calibrating the Hypnotic Journey. So inside of that, there's some incredible stories. There's some incredible metaphors. And listen through this conversation just to really pick up the importance of silence in your process, letting the change process sit, letting the client really have that moment where they can kinesthetically, uh, neurologically, whatever model of work we want to bring into it, the client can feel the changes in motion and allow themselves to fill in the gaps in terms of what's happening. So to really compound this theme of calibrating the hypnotic journey, we talk about everything from uh, fitness to magic to, again, that power of silence inside of the process. Of course, to check out more from Igor, head over to hypnosistrainingacademy.com. And uh, that three-part series that he and I did together within his Hypnosis Master's Interview Series will make it easy on you if you go over to worksmarthypnosis.com forward slash Igor. I-G-O-R. Head over there. That'll redirect over to a page where you can request all three of those uh, recordings, where again, it's more than four hours of content where we deep dive into some of my strategies, though this session is specifically about Igor. And again, a huge thank you once again to everybody who's been a part of this program up until now, because it's all about increasing that reach. And that's why I'm also so excited to invite you to join me in, in August in uh, Las Vegas, 2018, for Hypnotic Products. This is a two-day business course specifically for hypnotists appropriate for all levels of skills where it's a hands-on live interactive course where you're going to learn the mechanisms to actually create your own hypnotic products. So it's not just about creating that single-use audio program that you can maybe sell on a website for 20 or 30 bucks. We're talking about building entire systems, much more thorough programs that build a greater level of compliance with your clients and build even greater levels of success. So whether it's creating wellness products for the general community, or perhaps you're a fellow instructor and you want to share your knowledge with an even larger audience. Hypnotic Products was a sellout event at HypnoThoughts Live 2017 
backed by top popular demand. We're doing it again. HypnoThoughts Live 2018. Right after the convention, Tuesday and Wednesday, August 28th and 29th. Get all the details. Reserve your spot today at hypnoticproducts.com. And with that... Here we go, session number 150 of the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast. Thanks for joining me, Igor Ledahovsky, on Calibrating the Hypnotic Journey. Clearly, every one of us wakes up when we're first born and decides, I want to be a hypnotist. So what was that original introduction for you? How was it you first encountered hypnosis? Well, I think there's, there's, there's two, there's a, there's a handful of, of different events that kind of accumulated. The first one was, I think my fir- very first exposure to hypnosis, I must have been about three or four years old. And it was like a, a state hypnotist in Spain. And uh, he did the classic, you know, x-ray vision glasses and all the, the, the standards nowadays, of course. And I was just blown away by, by what this thing is. And I didn't even know what it was. It, it looked like magic to me. I was four years old after all, right? And uh, I think shortly afterwards, the, the, um, all the Star Wars movies started coming out. And this whole idea of uh, these are not the droids you're looking for, once again, it just captured my imagination. And I went, that's amazing. And of course, I put all that idea, those ideas aside for a longer time. At that point, I didn't think that was any, I thought it was just a, um, a TV show type thing, right? And then something very interesting thing happened. Um, I've always been interested in the kind of the bow of the mind and meditation, stuff like that in general. I think the martial arts background led me towards that. But then in the 19, gosh, I think it would be 1980s, a hypnotist in the UK called Paul McKenna started doing a regular weekly broadcast of a stage hypnosis show. So every week, it's a brand new show, brand new material, and it ran for a number of years. And it was, it was just, I was just blown away by that again. And uh, I think that's really when the, the seed started taking root. Because before I was too young, I just thought it was just, you know, uh, fantasy stuff, you know, like uh, uh, Santa Claus, or whatever else. Of course, it fired up my imagination <laughs> initially, but after a while, I let go of it. But then this weekly show where I saw this happening over and over and over again and all the crazy antics people got up to, it really got me thinking, you know, if this is possible, what else could be possible? And I think that's the question that's really uh, driven me throughout the years is what else can be possible? So, so this weekly show that Paul McKenna was doing on TV, I think that's the bit where it really started to blossom in my mind. And the reason for it is I was older now, I was in my teens and I got you know, fascinated by this. And the question that kept coming back to me was, um, if, if this is possible, if, you, if you've been seeing this every week, what else could be possible? Now, I'm not much of a stage hypnotist. It's not a, a, the career I've decided to pursue. It's not the main interest that I have. It's more, as you know, the idea of hypnosis in everyday life. That's the thing that really interests me. Um, but that, that, that initial spark took the idea of hypnosis out of a childlike uh, mindset. I'd relegate to the same place as, uh, you know, Santa Claus and, and the Easter Bunny. Um, but seeing that show every week started to get me to question that and say, listen, there's something, must be something going on here. And I wonder what it is. And I wonder what else could be possible with it. And I think that would be the, the period in which I started to rekindle my interest in hypnosis and then started to, to buy books and, and get hold of whatever uh, materials you could get hold of in the UK at the time, which, by the way, at the time was very difficult to get hold of stuff. 
Um, and that slowly started my, my journey into hypnosis. Yeah. So I love that in terms of first that interaction, which I'm having to smile and crack up in some wonderful way that my children right now at four mm. and six years old mm. are obsessed with this uh, movie of, uh, sort of a comic book of, uh, Captain Underpants okay. where there's this wonderful subplot. And I still haven't seen the movie yet, right. uh, but there's some subplot that these kids are hypnotizing their teacher. Okay. Um, so I'm having to wonder if, you know, 17, 18 years from now, suddenly we're going to have a, another renaissance of hypnosis as a result right. of that. <laughs> <laughs> but but you'll tell, you can tell these hypnotists because they're all wearing their underpants outside or their, uh, their um, regular pants, right? Exactly, exactly. Now, where did you grow up? So I grew up in part in Spain. And then later on, about seven years uh, later on, uh, we moved to England. And I grew up mostly in London at that point, hence my uh, mm -hmm. English accent. Yeah. So what, what was the track that you were going to be on until the hypnosis sort of renaissance and resurfaced for you? Right. Well, I think, you know, as most kids, I didn't really have a track when I started uh, off at school right. and all the rest of it. And, and then towards the time of choice, you know, when you have to start choosing universities and so on, um, I, I, I was split in three different directions. Um, the one track was law. I loved the, the clarity, the legal argumentation, the, um, the thought experiments and, and the, the logic inside of it. It's a, it. It felt a lot like a puzzle to me. So the law was one branch. The next branch was philosophy. I really enjoyed the idea of philosophy. Um, and then the third one was psychology. Uh, of the three, I ended up, I didn't, of course, at age, you know, 16, 17, 18, when you're starting to make these choices, you have no idea about what any of these things actually mean. It's a kind of a crazy system to uh, choose what you're going to dedicate your life to at a point in time where you don't know what life is about. So uh, <laughs> you kind of make random choices, right? Um, I chose law mostly because um, I think you have my options open. With a law degree, I figured you could go into most things. Um, philosophy was a bit obscure, I thought, for people. And psychology kind of locked you into one particular track. And in some ways, I'm glad I did this because um, I think law has taught me a lot about clear thinking, about uh, hearing the BS in people's arguments, uh, you know, about the, uh, following a line of logic through to its conclusion and, and flushing out inconsistencies. And I think that's very useful in hypnosis, which is prone to a lot of mysticism. So that was a very useful um, uh, training to have had. Um, I also did a kind of a, a, um, a, little, a minor in psychology in the first year. You had to choose a, a, a um, non-legal subject to kind of round off your education. And I was so appalled by the quality of psychology and its training and, and, and what uh, you know, the, the standard was at the time. I remember this is the early 1990s that I was, I was so happy to rededicate myself to being a lawyer at that point. It just, I decided <laughs> that was not for me. Um, the one regret I do have, though, is if I could go back in time, I would, might do something different. I might actually look for a really good philosophy course because I think a good philosophy course does everything that a good law course did for me, but then some. The thing that law didn't do for me, which I think a good philosophy course would do, and by the way, by a good philosophy course, I don't mean modern academic philosophy, which, which concerns itself with obscure argumentation and, and uh, extremely tiny areas of, of study, like you know, moral judgments, something like that. Not that that's necessarily bad. I'm talking about a more general program like they have in the U.S. in the, um, St. John's College in Annapolis, which is very old school philosophy uh, where you debate your way through to reasoning, very much using the dialectic process of Socrates to learn how to live, to, to have a sense of a lifestyle, um, which is much more important than learning how to make a living, right? 
And mm -hmm. uh, the reason I say that is because I think that's the closest to hypnosis that we have. It's, it's a way of looking at the world, which changes the way you behave in the world, and, uh, and hopefully in the direction of greater happiness and success in whatever way you define those things. And, and that's, a, um, you know, that's a thing that hindsight uh, has taught me. But of course, with, uh, without that uh, foresight at the age of 16, 17, I think the legal track was a decent one. I learned a lot of things from it. Uh, but as I say, that would, be, would have been, I think, a much stronger track to follow. Although, ironically, I think most people wouldn't know about it. I think they, they, uh, they as I did at the time, dismiss uh, philosophy. It's just so much um, hot air being spouted. Uh, and I think that's true if you don't believe in what you're talking about. Uh, but as soon as you start to actually try and investigate what, means, what truth means to you, what life means to you, I think then it has a chance to actually change you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and this uh, we have a tendency to jump around quite a bit here, and this seems like one of those uh, wrap-up questions we would probably ask about an hour from now. Uh, <laughs> this, this this could fit into the context of hypnosis. This could fit into the context of just living in this world. Mm. Um, and I'll ask it as a uh, either a one or a two-parter, sure. which would be that uh, what's something you used to believe but now you don't, or mm. flip it the other way, what's something that you used to not believe but now you do. Oh, gosh. No, that's a hard Yeah, one. let's put that in the context of hypnosis for this. Yeah, even there it's hard because, um, I mean, let's, let's think of it this way. Um, I think in terms of what I used to believe, uh, I used to believe that hypnosis was magic. I mean, I got into it relatively young again. Uh, remember, I was in my teens when I uh, got re-inspired and started learning things on, on the slide and on the, on the wayside. And, uh, and, 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 you know, part of the foolishness of the young is uh, that they think anything's possible, right? Which is great. It's a, it's a, I mean, I don't regret having had that mindset because it got me to take risks I would never otherwise have taken. And as a result of my failures from those risks, I learned a lot of important lessons I would otherwise not have learned, I think. Um, so, so, so the idea that hypnosis are limits, and the limits really are uh, inside of the human mind. I think those limits are a lot broader than most people give ourselves, uh, you know, give people credit for. Um, but we do, or we are subject to physical limitations. Uh, and I give you a classic mm -hmm. example. You know, I, I fell into the trap of the whole mind of a matter thing. That uh, you know, if your mind was in the right place, it didn't matter what you do with your body; everything would work out just fine. Uh, which once again goes into the the hubris of the young who feel indestructible, right? Um, and of course, my thinking has changed a lot since then. I think now that my body is part of my mind, and if my body suffers, it drains me mentally sufficiently that um, you know I can't do the mental things as easily anymore. Either otherwise, uh, you know, doing things like exercise is a good thing because it not only keeps your body healthy and stronger for longer, but actually keeps your mind in a healthier, uh, stronger state as well. And we have tons of research for that now. So that's that's the uh, used to believe, but is no longer true side. And the side of what's not true, but um, I now believe in. Whew. In terms of hypnosis, what will we go with this one? Um, okay, so so here's one for you, and this is this is a simple one. This is the as if or pretend frame. When I first came across the idea that you know you can pretend to be in trance and then and then or ask them to pretend to be in trance and then they they will basically act out exactly as though they were in trance. That didn't make sense to me at the time. You know, this whole idea of make believe like a little child and so on seemed uh, silly. I didn't think there's anything, anything really going on there. And, and I've come uh, 180 on that idea now. I think, I think that um, uh, people can act as if, imagine, pretend something to be true. And then if they do it in the right way, and, and that there is a, there is a, um, 
there's a sweet spot, shall we say, of, of this kind of pretending, um, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, it becomes true over time. Um, and what I mean by a sweet spot is this. There is a big difference between a self-delusion and a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> there's a huge yes. difference in terms of outcome. But actually, there's a very narrow gap that separates the two, if that makes sense. So you could have something that starts as a self-delusion that then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, or you could have something that starts as self-fulfilling prophecy, but then you start getting into buying your own hype and, and uh, narcissism or whatever you want to call it. And then slowly that uh, derails into a delusion. And, and the, the crossover point is not always easy to tell. But I think it's a very important thing to realize. Uh, a lot of people avoid dreaming big because they're afraid of the delusional aspects of it, I think. Um, at least the way I would phrase it. I'm sure, I'm sure that they would talk about it in these terms. They just think it's not possible or something like that. Um, but really, if they had a sense of the difference between when a self-delusion becomes self-fulfilling, then it becomes a nice hobby, a nice game you can play with yourself and just see where it takes you. And I think the key of not getting too attached is important. But at the same time, part of the, 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 the importance is um, interfacing with consensual reality. I think that's the big thing that delusional people don't do. They try and um, ignore consensual reality and any feedback they get just goes, just disappears. Um, whereas someone who's running a self-fulfilling prophecy learns uh, from that feedback loop and adapts either their behavior slightly or maybe tweaks their, their dream slightly so that it's something that can be expressed in the world. Does that kind of make sense to you? No, that does. And I, I'd share that's actually a bit of thought that I've been playing with over the last month or two myself mm. that, you know, even looking at, okay, let's look at this as the entry to the hypnotic induction, which mm. I, I can comfortably say from the trainings that I went through from the books I read in the early days, mm. I thankfully never had to deal with the, uh, the fear of what if I can't hypnotize them? Because I was trained by people who just worked from the presupposition that if that's you're nice. with me, you're going to want to be there. Yeah. So this was a, a virus I never really took on mm. yet the, so the concept of the oh if someone is nervous about the hypnosis mm. you could have them pretend was mm. this routine that i never played and yet in recent years the the thought being uh, there's a fine line between uh, fake it till you make it as well as uh, fooling the neurology which really comes down to if we're looking at it in terms of an induction a way to get into hypnosis it's just the beauty of you know one indirect suggestion after the other that I don't have to tell you this and that yet this is already happening. I don't have to tell you that and yet it's already happening, which you're clearly telling the person it's happening there. <laughs> though I, I love that aspect though of expanding it to you know personal success that there's a challenge. No, I, I'd say this, having seen so many clients over the years, here's the one that's coming in for two people for weight loss, let's say. And I can comfortably put most of them into two baskets as they were. There's this group that clearly gets the result they're going after. And then there's this other group that is doing a lot better, yet clearly they didn't hit that goal, yet still, okay, they're 30 pounds down rather than 60 and they're thrilled with it. So still, high five, you're doing great. Though it's it's often they're still holding on to that preconceived notion that it has to be hard. So there's something about the belief structure getting in there. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It becomes hard, right? Um, I, I, I got this one, I think, this, the penny drunk dropped on this one for me when I did uh, a lot of smoking sessions. That's my, um, one of my first uh, uh, fortes, one of my first sessions I focused on 
will stop smoking sessions. And initially I was terrified of them because, you know, you can't fudge results. They're either smoking or they're not smoking, <laughs> right? There's, there's, there's a very black and white test. So it terrified me, which is one of the reasons I, uh, I started going for them. And um, one of the games I started playing with my clients was the, uh, in the indirect suggestion game, just like you're saying here, where I, I had a two-session protocol. And um, I'd have them come in in the first session. We'd do most of the work. And I'd tell them that, you know, we're not done yet. We'll be finishing up in the next session. But uh, I have to warn you, and I love the phrasing of this, I have to warn you that uh, a lot of people, when they go home between sessions, they decide that uh, they just don't want to smoke anymore. And, and you know, feel free to carry on smoking if you want to. No pressure anyway. But if you feel like you really don't want to do it, you look at your cigarette and you just think, what's the point of this? And, of course, there's a lot of setup that comes before this already. Then don't force yourself to smoke. It's okay. You're not going to break the program if you, if you stop early, right? And I, I found that about, I don't know, seven out of ten people would then, quote, unquote, spontaneously quit between sessions. Uh, and the reason I like that is because there's no fighting, wrestling, and mindset, anything like that. They just got surprised by it. And of course, the others had to do with a little bit more work to um, get them over the hump at the second session. Um, and, and, uh, but that's the, you know, that's the idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy. They, they get intrigued by an idea, and then the idea comes to life for them. Um, but of course, the, the flip side is also true. There's a lot of people out there, and, and you see them on, you know, America's Got Talent or these different talent shows, who have no concept of just how unskilled they really are, right? They, they, the, the illusion they hold inside their mind is very different from their reality. And then you see them uh, failing and, and not understanding why they failed, which is the sad part. Uh, and then you can see the armor starting to build up again, where the illusion gets uh, reinforced. I am good, just no one else gets me type thing. Um, and, and, and I think that's, that's sad because I'm sure these people could be good if they trained, if they learned, if they progressed and so on. But they're not willing to put the effort in to systematically grow, in this case, as musicians say, um, because they are bound by the illusion that they already are better than they are. You see, when, when the learning cycle gets, uh, when your belief interferes with the learning cycle, that's when you have a problem. When your belief reinforces the learning cycle, then I think you have a great solution. Uh, and I think that's for me, is the, the, the magic, the difference between pretending um, in a successful way and pretending in a delusional way. Does that make sense? That does. And there's got to be some trace of that magical quality, I think, for us to actually find the interest in yeah. this in most cases, though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You can't just impose on someone a lifestyle or reality that, that, does, that doesn't speak to them. I mean, let's go back to my mm -hmm. own interest in hypnosis. You know, as a kid watching the Star Wars movies, uh, there's a the whole generation of uh, kids who were blown away by that. And, and, you know, some have gone down the literal path of joining the Church of Jedis. They'd actually, it's a thing, apparently. <laughs> yes. Uh, and they have fun with this. And, then I, and you know what? God bless them. Um, or the force bless them in this case, I guess, right? There you go. <laughs> um, others have gone a more metaphorical route and they've become, you know, maybe magicians. Maybe uh, there's a whole slew of magicians that were um, um, inspired by, you know, the Star Wars saga. And one of my favorites is Darren Brown. Actually, you know, does similar, you know, stunts that are right on the verge that it could fit into a Star Wars type universe. Uh, and the reason I find that more interesting is because when we have a physical limitation, in other words, um, you can't, you know, gather up these magical energies and suddenly make something uh, happen right in front of you, you know, out of sheer force of will. That's that the, the, the world is not set up to work that way. Um, 
but you can create an analog, a metaphorical version of that that gives you the same uh, quality of experience, but it's actually possible in the within the physical limits of our universe. Does that make sense? That does. I still have to fold in the one side note, and I think you'll get this specific uh, connotation of what I'm saying here, that still within such a presentation, we can play with language in such a way that the memory of what actually happens is closer to the magic than the event yes. actually was. Yes, yes, and, and, and let's face it. Um, when, when you go to a movie and you feel that magic, right, what are you feeling the magic for? All you're seeing is a pattern of flickering lights on a screen, and you're getting you know, some sounds coming at you. I mean, if you, let's just break it down to its simplistic thing. It's light energy and sound energy, and that's it, right? Our brains are putting these things together in a way that gives us this meaning, this, this emotional high, if you like. And, and it's drawing the meaning out of it, which means um, you can put the meaning back into things. And this is, I think, a very interesting concept that, that um, our culture has lost sight of, that you can put meaning into things. Now, back in the days when, when uh, religion was a more dominant force, and, and I separate religion and spirituality, by the way, um, the, the people would imbue things by giving it a godlike nature. You know, God made that tree, God made that lawn, God made that river. Let's respect these things, right? And I think it has a great a deal of value. I'm not saying that everyone uh, thought in these terms, but those people that did, it was very easy to put meaning and value into the world. Um, it becomes a lot harder in a secular society, especially when our values, uh, at least the media values are being pushed, seem to be things like stay young forever when you grow old, then panic because life is, is, is no good anymore, right? Um, that's a strong media meme going on right now. Um, you know, value uh, cash and material possessions. It's a huge media meme. Just look at advertising, right? And, and uh, you know, the weird one now is... Um, the more unhealthy you are, the more guilt-ridden, the more shameful you seem to feel, the more um, the more virtuous you are in a weird way. And that one I don't get at all, right? Uh, and these are these are very unhealthy memes that our culture is just being reinforced through the media in our culture. And the reason I say they're unhealthy is because they take us away from finding what's meaningful for us in our lives. Other people are trying to tell you what should be valuable and meaningful to you. They're not offering you a buffet of, of values and saying, here's the consequences of valuing these things over these things. Now it's up to you, right? If you value money over ethics, well, uh, chances are you'll end up in jail or at least you'll end up the kind of person that should be in jail. Does that make sense? And these mm-hmm. thoughts are, are, are uh, I think, pretty straightforward, but a lot of people don't take time to think them through. And so then you're left with, you know, just watch reality TV shows. I think the, uh, I saw a snippet of, I'm not sure it was the Kardashians or, or some housewives of whatever show. Um, but it's all drama. And I don't mean drama in the sense of, you know, uh, the Greek tragedies that are designed to help you exercise your emotions. No, this is just purely people behaving badly and creating hurt and misery for each other. That's awful. It's, it's, I don't think it's a very nice way to live life. And by being distracted by uh, messages like that, we don't get encouraged to think for ourselves, what do I need? What do I value? Where do I draw meaning? And how can I make the world around me feel more meaningful by living up to whatever internal standards I want to set for myself? Does that make sense? 
That does. And it brings to mind that fact that from one person to another, we're attaching a different set of meaning to practically anything else out there. I mean, it's all, you know, study of subjective reality. And it's often the importance that, as I say in the hypnosis world, that no matter how clever you think uh, the two of us might be, or even you may be as a practitioner, whatever's often going on inside of the client is going to be so much more profound once they uncover that, once they discover that. So to leave place in your work for the client to, you know, allow the change to occur, it's where I've heard you speak at times around allowing the silence to really land inside of the session. 100%. And I think the power of pausing is a hugely overlooked thing in hypnosis. And I know why. When I started, I, I unfortunately didn't have as good as instructors as you did. So I, I, my first few instructors were uh, more insecure about, you can, you can tell there was, the hypnotic skill wasn't solid. Uh, as an example, the very first guy I actually paid to go to a life training with, um, it was horrible. I, I left with knowing less about hypnosis and having more insecurities about doing hypnosis than before I arrived. So when I was self-taught from books, I had more confidence and better skill and better results than after I left the seminars. So I don't know what kind of anti-hypnosis went on there, but it wasn't good. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think taking time, and, and of course, with that mindset in the back of your mind, the idea of it's got to work, it's got to work, it's got to work. Um, I at least got very desperate. I've got to keep talking. I've got to keep making suggestions. Uh, I've got to find that magical phrase that will get everything done right. Uh, and of course, that always escapes you when you're overthinking things like that. And, and over time, what I realized what happens is if you give a really good suggestion, why would you ruin it by giving another one right afterwards? Think of like having a meal, right? If I've just taken the trouble to create this wonderful gourmet mission star level meal, right? Why would I tell you you've only got five minutes to gobble it up before I give you dessert. I mean, that mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. You want to sit there, you want to appreciate the color and the smells and then balancing the different flavors of the foods as you put them together and create this, uh, this uh, art in your mouth, this uh, flavorful experience. You want people to take time to be able to enjoy it. And I think suggestions work the same way. The more you can give people time to enjoy the impact of the suggestion, the more you give space for their unconscious to run with it. And that's when the really cool stuff happens. Um, you know, I found that the, uh, now that the more I shut up, the more I can catch offers from the unconscious, which are even cooler now, because once the unconscious mind's already offered it, then you know you're pretty much onto a winner. You know it's going to succeed. But the, the, the irony is the conscious mind, even though they've just literally said it out loud, they have no idea they said it out loud. And when you ask them about mm -hmm. it, they go, what are you talking about? It, it's a really interesting kind of phenomenon. Um, but I really like it. I think that's when we're really onto something. And it takes a lot of pressure off us as hypnotists because um, we are not so much um, you know, magicians uh, exuding a force on the world. We're more inventors tinkering with a mechanism until it's working better. And the mechanism, of course, is not in my mind. If you're the client, it's in your mind. And so I think that's, that, that, that's much more relieving. It's more a question of let's try this, see what happens. All right, what happened? All right, let's try it this way. Now tell me what happened. And then getting that feedback loop going means you're no longer guessing as to what's going on. You're actually you knowing. And then you know, is it time to do something else? Is it time to change direction? Is it time to step things up? Or is it time to just shut up and let them do it because they're doing it, right? Um, I don't need the glory anymore. They can take all the glory for themselves as long as they get the change they're looking for, right? 
So the side note here is that often as we're having this conversation, I'm looking for uh, what is going to be that uh, sort of click-worthy title uh, mm. of the uh, presentation. I think we landed on uh, Igor Shuts Up About Hypnosis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> although, uh, no, we're not going to use that. Um, it def- definitely beats the other session previous title, which could have been uh, Larry Elman has multiple issues and instead turn into uh, working on multiple issues with Larry Elman. Is, is there a specific strategy? Is there a specific technique, though, um, in terms of finding that moment to let that silence land? So, so I think that the, the secret answer to this is observation, right? Um, mm. And I'm going to give you this. You're a magician, so I know you'll appreciate this. I, I, I'll give you this from uh, something I did way back in the early days. Uh, I did some mentalism, which is, uh, for those of you listening at home, it's the brand of magic that fakes psychic phenomena. And, of course, you can tell with my love of Star Wars what I was trying to fake, right? Um, and it's a complete fake, just, just so we know. This is very clear. I, I have no pretensions to magical abilities. It, it was a, a nice showpiece, uh, you know, fakeness. And this particular, um, this particular uh, trick... Um, uh, was semi-hypnotic in the sense that you're inducing someone to think of a particular shape and then you draw the shape and um, magic miracle you can read people's minds right um, so this, this is the, the reason I like this trick is because it was a little bit of hypnosis involved in terms of you're suggesting some simple shapes a circle a triangle or a square or something like that and uh, you know it hits maybe seven times out of ten and sometimes it misses right and then you just have a little bit of egg in your face and you move on now, on this particular day, I was, um, I was trying to suggest a triangle, right? And uh, I might as well give the method away. It's real simple. As you're speaking, you make a casual hand gesture, and one of the hand gestures yes. turns into a, a, a triangle as you tell them to think about a shape. You just flash the image of a triangle to them with you know, your fingers making a quick triangle. It's something that the conscious mind tends to not pick up, the unconscious mind tends to pick up, wherever it's, everything's cool, right? And then, and then, of course, they went, okay, I've got it. You've got it? Great. So then I go through the whole rigmarole of pretending to read his mind and, and saying, it's kind of like this. I see this. I see a line and all the rest of it. And then I came up with my magical phrase, it's a triangle. Now, the important action now is describing the features of the person I was talking to. Um, his, his eyes were round, wide open, eyebrows sky high in his face, jaw dropping as I was doing the whole, you know, lines and talking about the angles and all the rest of it. And he was totally excited until I said the word triangle. And then everything in his facial expression fell. His eyebrows dropped. His uh, eyelids drooped. I think he tripled blinked in disappointment. His jaw (laughs) snapped shut. I mean, this is, this is, this was obvious, right? There was no subtlety required to read this man's reaction. And and what does this mean? It means he wasn't thinking of a triangle. He's disappointed. I got it wrong because he was so excited it was happening, right? And, and this is this is the bit where I, I felt uh, glorious in redemption because I went no no sorry someone else was thinking of a triangle so you shut up stop thinking <laughs> and everyone got really surprised by that <laughs> because the guy next thing was thinking of the triangle which was of course an extra miracle right uh, but that was a a, right. a, 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 a lucky coincidence well kind of um, this guy was actually thinking of a of a of a rectangle of a square um, you know like a, like a football net type thing because that's what he resonated with right. And because I've been describing lines and angles and he's excited by that, there's only three shapes. There's a circle, there's a triangle, there's a square. Those are the only really simple shapes people think about. And uh, he was thinking, the, he responded to the idea of having angles in it, which a circle doesn't have. And if it's not a triangle, it's got to be the square. So I told him it was a square. Miracle saved, face really lit up again, jaw dropped again, eyebrows up, uh, you know, pumps, uh, uh, fists in the air, whoops in the air, thinking this is an amazing thing. But really what happened? What was happening? I took an educated guess as to what was in his mind. I got it wrong. 
I read his unconscious reaction. And before his conscious mind could step in and realize I'm disappointed, I corrected my direction into the correct answer, if you like, in this case. And this is the important part. Once that happened, the rest happens inside his mind. This point is where ego shuts up, right? It's just a square <laughs> and then it goes, and then I shut up. And now everything is helping his mind. It's, I can't believe, how do you do this? Oh, I just, you know, said a few things. And then, I, you know, I, I thought you, I was really worried because I thought you were going to get wrong for a second. I said, yeah, I'm sorry. Your friend was thinking too loudly, re-emphasizing, of course, the, uh, the, that part of the trick, if you like, right? And, and, and um, you know, it's a, it's a really nice, it would end up being a really nice moment. But the, the secret here is, it's reading people's reactions. Now, why am I mentioning all of this in the context of when do you shut up in hypnosis? Well, it's simple. When I present a suggestion to someone and they have what looks like a really positive reaction, um, then, then that's the point at which I shut up and let them have their moment, right? Um, I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Um, how do you get good at, first of all, how do you spot these signals? The signals they're looking for are real simple. Agreement versus disagreement, right? So mm-hmm. speak to people and, and, and throw lots of yes sets out and throw lots of no sets out. And after a while, you'll start noticing that there is a difference in how they answer no-style questions to yes-style questions. And that difference can be generalized overall. There's an, the, the accepting quality of a yes-style question tends to be open posture, open eyes, and head nodding, all these little things that are there, right? Um, you overall get a positive vibe from people. Uh, with, with, with no, you tend to get more of a shutdown vibe, a less pleasant vibe, a, a, a disconnecting kind of thing. And again, the body language will show it in terms of head shakes, smile, frowns, uh, increased blinking or shielding by closing the eyes or turning away. These little signs will tell you they didn't like something, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. So they didn't like it. My, 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 uh, my simple option at that point is to ask, what just happened? Because chances are my suggestion stimulated a pre-existing suggestion. Like, for example, if I tell them, you're a great person, and I get that little frown response, shall we say. I'll just pause and say, so what just happened? And he'll tell me about how a memory flashback of being four years old and being told by mommy or daddy or a teacher, you're a no-good person, you'll never amount to anything, right? So there's a pre-existing negative suggestion that I now have to deal with. Um, on the flip side, um, if if he just sort of sits there like he is a... a um, uh, a seal bathing in the sun, right? Just absorbing all the luxuriness of the, of the suggestions. Then that's the point at which I shut up and let them have their moment. Um, there are other times I'll do this too. So there's an example of teaching an Ericksonian, uh, hypnosis course, a metaphor course. And, um, I was telling a, a, a kind of a cooking style metaphor uh, to help the, the personal stage overcome, um, uh, some issues about deserving this and so on. And, uh, you know, in the story, when it got to a dramatic point in the story, uh, I could tell that the client was getting really emotional. Something in the story had triggered uh, her emotions and uh, she started crying in a a, um, therapeutic sense. In other words, you could tell she was releasing a lot of pent up emotions. Let's put it that way. Right. So what did I do with my story? I shut up mid sentence even. Right. Because. She needed time to process that emotion. So why would I would I rush over it? I just shut up, maybe five minutes or so, as that emotion intensified, intensified, peaked, and slowly drained away. And it hadn't gone entirely. It had uh, mostly drained out when I carried on the, the story, basically where it left off. 
uh, and without making any comment about that emotional reaction. Why? Because, well, there's no need. The whole point of indirect method here is to let them process it in their own way, and clearly they're doing it. But the key is, if I kept talking when the emotions came up like that, then she wouldn't have heard the rest of that story. She would have been so busy trying to handle the emotions, she wouldn't have heard the story, or she would have tried to suppress the emotions in order to hear the story. Either way, the impact of the moment would have been lost. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so it really just comes down to that calibration with that individual to observe that something is landing, something is happening, and to really let that be the cue to shut the hell up and just let let that rest, let that take place. And if in doubt, just ask, right? So what's happening? Mm-hmm. It's a really, I mean, th- this blew my mind. Uh, John Oberdorf, uh, who considered to be my mentor, taught me this idea. Up until this point, um, you know, my style of hypnosis was basically the house of cards, build it really subtly and quietly. And then when they're done, open their eyes, kick them out before a stiff breeze comes along to blow the house of cards back down again. I, I didn't want to fail in my office. If it's going to fail, let them fail out of sight so I don't have to feel bad about myself, Right. And that was essentially my my attitude. Bad attitude, by the way, folks. I don't recommend this. No, I, I'd agree. I, I keep seeing the pattern that I refer to as the look, don't see. That uh, they can clearly tell the client is not in motion. Something is not working and continuing on with the theme of, well, this is how we always do it and it ought to work. As opposed to be vulnerable in that moment. Realize that, okay, I do have a part of this. Yes. And the thing, the key distinction to me was um, – to, to, to come up with the, the, the concept was just mind-blowing for me uh, when, when John Overton said, I'd rather have the client fail in front of me when I have a chance to do something about it, to fix it, than mm. to fail at home and then beat themselves up about something. Uh, and, and I thought, of course, that's genius. I'd rather run my sessions longer and get the job done and feel good that I've actually helped someone than they try and fake it and just take the money and run, right? Um, and then the corollary of that is, how do you know something's working? The idea that you have to wait an hour to finish talking and then bring them back and say, so how was that? It, it, it's crazy. You can just talk to them in trance. So how are you doing now? What's happening now? Open your eyes and talk to me, right? Free speech returns to your throat. And sometimes people need encouragement <laughs> to be able to speak like that, right? But the point is, you can actually talk to someone when they're in trance. And the question is, are they in trance or not? The answer is, again, very simple. It doesn't matter. If it's their conscious or their unconscious mind talking to you, either way, you'll get the information to know what your next step is, right? So you don't have to make a distinction about conscious, unconscious minds uh, talking to you at that point. Um, You just need to know what their experience is. Is there a suggestion landing as intended or is it uh, it being fought by some pre-existing idea? And either way, you've got something to do. If it's a pre-existing idea that's fighting you, then you find that idea and then your next round of suggestions are all about neutralizing and dissolving that suggestion. And that might be a longer process. It might take two or three sessions with a really entrenched idea to loosen it like that. Otherwise, if it's something that's actually resonating with them, then take whatever ideas are resonating with that. So pre-existing suggestions that are reinforcing that, find out about them and then use them to reinforce the suggestion further. And you go, that's right. It's exactly like when you were five years old playing in the snow. I have no idea why it's like being five years old and playing in the snow, but clearly it's something positive for them. They've accepted it. So I'm going to reinforce it that way. Make sense? It, it does. So being in the moment and getting that feedback, you know, I love that concept of, 
you know, getting that feedback rather than waiting and see yeah. that, um, you know, I, I think this is a helpful frame, even if you're in process with a client, let's say you're a couple of sessions in, you're working on something oh, yeah. over a brief series of sessions. And I, I found it to be absolutely critical to have that moment to actually say with a smile on the face, I'm glad that we had this challenge while we're still working together. Mm. Uh, because this means we get to actually do something about it rather than having yeah. it explode later on. So great, right. you're here. What does that feel like? Let's go after this. Yeah. And you know what? You nailed it. There, there's nothing wrong with extra things coming to your session. Clients are very reasonable people, generally speaking. And you say, listen, there's something you just came up. Uh, I think this is probably part of what we need to do. It'll probably extend our program by a few sessions. Are you okay with that? Do you want to pursue this, right? Um, and most clients do, especially if you've got a good rapport with them and they see that you're in this for them and that they're already starting to get some successes and so on. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't like inflating sessions just for the sake of it. You know, I, I, I've seen some people who will inflate sessions and you know make them longer and so on just to get more cash. And I don't like that mm -hmm. approach. I think it's a very useful approach. That doesn't mean they don't like long sessions. I do, uh, as, I've, as I've matured in the skills, I've gone out of this kick I used to have of fixing everything in 20 minutes or less, right? Um, yeah. You know, one session uh, miracles. Uh, and they're great and they still happen, but they, and they're still great. But I think the much healthier option now is to give them medium to long-term programs because if they can do one thing in one session, have a mind-blowing change, that's good. They've gone home. It's over. That one little problem, that remedial problem has been squashed. Fantastic. But the thing that really excites me is when someone goes from, you know, the, the, it's the zero to hero story. Their life is currently constrained in all these different ways. And you give them one little miracle, another little miracle, a third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Each one is, of course, its own little session. But over a while, after a while, they become generalized. They, they're the avalanche, you know, you've thrown enough pebbles down that an avalanche is now going to ensue. And I love seeing people's lives post-avalanche, right? When everything is turned around and they say, you know, my life is so totally different now in a good way. I, I could never have conceived of myself being where I am right now before we started this process. And, and uh, given how much we can do in one or two sessions, then the question I ask myself is, well, if they can get this much done in one session, what amazing people, how amazing could their lives be if we spend three months or six months or a year working together? Now that, I think, is when it gets really exciting because now you go from remedial to generative change, uh, from you know, overcoming this problem, this problem, this problem, to um, having such an amazing life that all the problems you used to have literally are no longer possible, right? Yeah. Uh, here's an analogy of what I mean by that. Um, you know, um, most kids have some kind of a security blanket, whether it's a stuffed toy or an actual blanket or a favorite shirt or something they carry around. They carry it around because it's, it's, it gives them a sense of security. They're attached to it emotionally, right? Uh, and it's a phase that most kids will hopefully grow out of. You know, I, I haven't seen a man with a security blanket recently, but I'm sure uh, they, they exist out there somewhere. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I don't know if you had one of these things or not when you were young, but let, let's assume you did. Uh, I, I certainly did. And, and at the time, you know, the idea of losing it or not having it when I needed it was terrifying, right? You go on a trip, it has to come with me, right? Uh, we're going to stay overnight with somebody, it's got to come with me. And, and there is a kind of an obsessive ideation, an obsessive thought that is afraid of what would the world be like if it's not there, right? Now, clearly, that fear is no longer with me. And, and, and in case it wasn't clear, I'll make it clear now. I do not have that fear anymore. I do not have a security blanket. In fact, I have no idea where my old uh, security blanket or toy uh, has disappeared to. It's, dis it's disappeared in the, in the annals of time, and I'm okay with that. Uh, why? 
because now I have my, I have, as I've matured as a person, the class of problems I used to have as a child are no longer possible for me, right? Now I have other problems, it's true. And there are other things that challenge me. That's absolutely correct. But all the things that used to challenge me as a child no longer challenge me in that way uh, because I have grown. And that's the concept I have in my mind for generative change. What if a person becomes so amazing that all the problems they're currently facing are no longer possible? They'll still, of course, there'll be other problems that they'll have to face, but those are called uh, high quality problems, right? And let's, right. let's put it this yeah. way. Uh, let's take the hypnosis uh, uh, success uh, principle. Um, most hypnotists are struggling to make ends meet. And, and the, the, you know, the, their, their problem is cash flow, getting, drawing cash in by getting clients in, right? That's the fundamental problem a lot of, uh, especially starting with therapists have. Let's say a low quality problem. The high quality problem version of this is you have so many clients and so much cash, you don't know what to do with the cash. It's just sitting in the bank and you feel it needs to do something, but you don't know, should you buy a house with it? Should you invest in the stock market with it? Should you invest in another corporation privately? What should you do with that money? Now, that can weigh on your mind, of course, but so it's a problem. But it's the kind of problem that you wouldn't have had when you were trying to just struggling to pay the bills because you don't have enough coming in to meet your life demands at this point. They're fundamentally different types of problems. And I don't know about you, but I'd much rather have high-level problems than low-level problems, right? It, it, it suggests that my life is going pretty well if the thing I'm worried about is, where do I invest my money as opposed to uh, where the heck do I get enough money to eat next week and pay my rent? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's where you know the, the theory and maybe out of you just out of Buddhist philosophy, the idea that our problems will go away is not the case. That mm. instead our problems get more interesting. There's mm. a quick story of a guy who I worked with that he did call me up about a year after we worked on his fear of public speaking, mm-hmm. and the first thing he said was, "I've got a brand new problem," and <laughs> I could tell he was smiling as he said it because now he's been speaking, he's been promoted several times over. Yeah. And as he put it, he goes, you know, I've been so successful at this, yet now because of my higher position, I'm having to manage a team of people that he goes, I don't even have to say this to my teenage sons. I have to look at these adults at work and say, look, you don't have to like each other. You just have to get the work done. (laughs) And it's him, you know, from the point of view of I'm so much happier. I've got this as an issue. He goes, it doesn't bother me so much at work. He goes, it's kind of going home with me and it's keeping me up at night. I'd, I'd rather have this problem than, than that old problem that, so, so the question to you though, is this something that, and this, I don't mean to put it as this uh, polarized issue black and white that you've just described exactly why I'm a firm believer in a multiple session protocol. And in my world, I kick off with a series of three appointments. And the phrasing is, if that's all we need, fantastic. If there's value and more, of course, that's an option. And I see a nice mix of people that we're three and done, we're four or five and done. And here's someone coming this week that it's I'd say off the top of my head, the 17th or 18th time, yet we're continuing that story. We're continuing that journey. I'm not just compounding what we did in the first session. Is this type of generative change possible in the shape of a one-session meeting? Oh, I, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's going to be it's got to be something pretty profound. In other words, something that turns the world so upside down. Um, you know, it's, it's a slow-burning fuse. It's an idea that's so insidious that... Um, everything they do from that point on will be different, right? So, so 
you know, what is that idea? Well, I wish there was a universal idea that, that uh, you know, would work for everyone, but I don't think that is such a thing. But I'll give you something close to it. And, and, and I've seen this actually work, um, uh, literally work miracles in people's lives, right? Um, and, and this is this is a bit of an unfashionable thing nowadays, but uh, screw it, I don't care because uh, uh, what I care about is what works. Uh, and this is the idea of <laughs> the people who've gone from being uh, non-spiritual to being spiritual, from being essentially atheists or agnostics to being uh, kind of bringing God into their lives in some way, right? And um, the reason I said this is uh, I've got a couple of people in mind who, who uh, were sexually abused as children, essentially raped as children. And apologies for turning a little bit dark here. It's a messed up thing. And especially with someone that's happened to not just once, but over a, a period of time, uh, one particular person thinking about her father not only uh, raped himself, but handed her out to his friends as like uh, party favors, horrible things to do, right? And you can imagine that can crush someone and their, their, their life trajectory is going to go to very dark places. And in fact, uh, has, was going to dark places for her and, and some of the other people I'm thinking about right now, right? And then, and here's where I mentioned the idea of the idea of God. Not, whether or not you think God exists is, is just an unrelated issue. Uh, what matters is that they believe in God and his existence. And most importantly, in what God means, right? God not meaning, you know, the God of wrath and punishment and hellfire and brimstone. No, the version of God that they needed was the one of pure love, of kindness, of acceptance, of, you know, sacrifice, for you, of compassion, taking those high-level concepts and compressing it all into one idea, and this idea we will call God for now, whether, again, you think of God as an actual entity that exists or an, an idea that people uh, live up to, that's entirely your choice. I'm not, uh, you know, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter for this uh, argument here, right? Um, but here's what I saw starting seeing happening. It wasn't an overnight change, no. But as they started conceptualizing this all-loving, all-compassionate, uh, all-powerful being that's rooting them for them on the sidelines. You know, like a parent rooting for their, their child in a football match and, and, you know, they've been benched for too long and now they've got their chance. And the parent really wants them to succeed. And having that mindset of someone really wanting to succeed and this person happens to be the man uh, or the dude or the woman if you want to go for goddesses instead. The point is you have this super supportive frame and every time they feel guilt or shame or... Uh, every time they, they are faced with a moral quandary, how should I act? Well, I want to do this, but is that the right thing? Having this uh, loving, kind, wholesome reference point to use as their decision-making uh, strategy, if you like, um, I've seen them turn their lives around. You know, um, the, the, the particular uh, um, uh, lady I was telling you about, um, her friends, they're going down destructive paths with drugs. One person's, one of her friends is probably going to die of a drug overdose soon. He's already had a few close calls. The other one is hanging out with uh, uh, gangsters, had a uh, gun pulled on them a few times. So, you know, you can see that that's going down a very dark path. But this girl here, she has completely transformed herself. She um, has chosen a different path. She's hanging out less and less with those self-destructive friends. Uh, she's seeing more and more of that self-destruction in their behavior, which is polarizing her more and more as her own faith grows. Now, again, I'm not suggesting faith is, is the only path to helping people through things like that. But what I am suggesting is that that one meeting with someone, and then whoever it was, it doesn't really matter, that gave them a sense of there is this divine entity that's out for your best interest. And that idea resonated with them so much that from that point on, 
their life started getting better and better and better. It doesn't mean that they, they, were, um, they didn't screw up ever again after that. No, lots of screw-ups along the ways. But each screw-up became slightly healthier, slightly more benign, slightly less damaging and destructive. And over time, the, the, the individual became more peaceful. They became happier. They became more pro-social, proactive. Um, and, and I'm sure that journey is going to continue on. But I think that's the power of an idea that really uh, drives someone towards health. And if you can find that idea with someone, uh, whether it's, it lies within their spirituality or it lies in some other aspect of their, um, their personality, their drives and so on, that I think is where the generative change comes from. The problem, of course, of doing that in one session is, um, as far as I know, I can't think of a methodology that will find that one magical idea for someone in an hour or less, right? Yeah, I wish I knew. That would be instant therapy done for life, right? Um, I also flash back to your story of trying to uh, draw out the shape of a triangle and the guy thought of a rectangle and yet the person next to them was thinking of a triangle and turned into a bit of a hit yeah. that I'd uh, I'd fold in the catchphrase that this kind of came out of my stage hypnosis years of residual trance, yes. uh, which the catchphrase that I'd use for this where here's the one where very clearly I'm saying the person I'm tapping on the shoulder mm-hmm. in a moment, you're going to see everybody else get up. The moment they get up, you're going to find you're stuck to the chair and hilarity would ensue. Mm. And it was very clear that I was giving that to just one person, Mm. and yet I do my dismissal, and down the row, here's this one person who was also stuck to the chair, yet Mm. clearly that wasn't for them. Mm. I I bring that up here because, uh, well, there's the extreme story of here's this uh, person that I worked with that she calls me up in a bit of uh, a panic going – Hey, I, I I got on the plane. I've traveled here to this convention, no problem. But I need you to call me back right away. I need to I need you to answer me a question. And already I'm thinking, oh dear. And as soon as I'm on the phone with her, she's going, I need you to explain something. Why is my public speaking fear also gone? <laughs> and all I could right? think was you know, the 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 pause followed by, you're welcome. <laughs> 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 that maybe you know at its core, you know, it may have been something related. Perhaps we could just simply go off of that simple idea. Yet. As soon as this thing's in motion, a domino's another thing, another thing, another thing, that just simply getting that foot in the door sometimes is what dominoes so many other things that you could be creating changes on things you didn't even know and even they didn't even know they needed to address. That to me is where the generative change comes in. Remedial change tends to be contained. Um, You know, you get this one thing done and that's it. Generative change as a rule has a way of spreading throughout your life in a benign way. Right. Um, your story just reminds me of another one of a, um, a lady I worked with for a snake phobia. And this is a really strong phobia to the point where just saying the word snake causes a woman to sat, sit down and almost faint. It was that intense. Right. So, you know, uh, as opposed to going straight into a, a kind of a, a, you know, whatever phobia cure model, uh, at this point I use the regression, but the, the method's irrelevant. Before I could go into the actual phobia cure itself, I had to spend 15 minutes just kind of uh, hypnotically calming her down enough to be able to do the session. Otherwise, um, you can imagine what someone on the verge of panic would would do when they go into a trance from the verge of panic. Not the best place to uh, kind of get started from, right? Anyway, the, the session itself was very intense, lots of emotions, uh, huge catharsis, big release, and that's nice. Now, the bit that was really interesting, of course, was what happened to her afterwards. Uh, she sent me a few emails and a, and, a, and a photograph afterwards. The photograph was charming. It's her standing in a pet shop with a snake coiled around her neck and a look of disbelief on her face going, I can't believe I'm doing this, right? 
Um, but the, 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 the other side of it, though, is, and the idea that really stuck with her was, if you can do this, what else can you do, right? And this lady was a mother, so she was, she was facing a snake phobia in part to, to show her kids that you can do anything you set your mind to. But then she took that message literally for herself as well, right? Once, although she, the initial fuel to get her to this is, you know, I've got to do this so I can show my children that you don't get, you don't have to get stuck in life. You don't have to get stuck with the fear, right? But uh, because, and why? Because that's going to open up their life to potentials and so on. And that's actually exactly how she ended up treating it for herself. So that seed idea, that core idea that can be generative can come from anywhere. Um, the problem is, I don't, you know, I don't exactly know exactly how to shape it each time for an individual. That tends to come out of interactions, conversations, and often just a side remark someone makes has the, to my ear, the tingling of something unconscious. So when I reflect it back to them in some other way as a suggestion, they just take it on board and like they're a, a, a man dying of thirst with now a gallon of water. They're just chugging away at it because they really like this idea. And that idea can be, if it's wholesome enough, can totally change your life around. Um, do you mind if I share a quick Eric's story around this? I love that. So this is the, um, I've got his name now. So it's Bob or Bill. I think it's Bill. Uh, Bill's back in town story. And I'm not going to do, any, I'm not going to do the same just as Ericsson does, uh, but feel free to look this one up. Um, Ericsson's a little 10-year-old boy or something like that playing with his friends. And his friend comes up and says, have you heard Bill's back in town? And who's Bill? Bill's the local troublemaker, right? Uh, as soon as, um, uh, you know, Bill's spent, uh, from the age of 16, he's been in and out of prison for the last 10 years. And um, he's a willful man. So, for example, you know, he spent most of his time in prison in solitary confinement, which is uh, pure hell, if, if you know anyone who's been in those things, um, because the, the wardens couldn't break him. So he's a stubborn, obstinate man, angry at life. And whenever he shows up, things go missing. You know, within a week of Bill turning up, uh, a trailer goes missing, a boat goes missing, and a bunch of tools go missing, and the hardware store is missing. Well, a lot of hardware, right? Uh, everyone knows who did it, but no one can actually uh, uh, point the finger, play. No one has any proof. So Bill is still going around until his next escapade where he actually gets caught to go to prison, right? But now this is a little different because um, um, uh, Eric Erickson, uh, you know, spots Bill talking to, uh, I don't know the lady's name, but it's the, uh, the, the local uh, darling. She's the, uh, a wealthy farmer's daughter. She's uh, getting older. She hasn't married yet. And everyone's getting a little bit worried. You know, there's back in the days where people were getting married at 18 or 16 or something. And she's now in her 20s and not married. So people are getting very worried that she'll become an old spinster. But she's also, she's beautiful. She's the heiress to this very wealthy farm. So she's basically a, a, a dream catch, right? Bill's talking to this young lady. And he says to her, can I take you to the dance on Friday night? And she looks up at him a little coyly and says, you can if you're a gentleman. Now, that is the phrase. You can as long as you're a gentleman. What's implied by a gentleman? Well, let's find out. Within a week, with, before Friday comes around, the trailer that's gone missing goes unmissing. The boat suddenly turns up on the dock again, and there's a big box full of hardware outside the local hardware store being returned, right? Um, from that point forward, of course, uh, Bill and, 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 and the, the, the lady went for their dance. They started courting. They got married. Bill's life turned around. He became a, um, a workhand at the father's farm, one of the most reliable, trusted workmen the father ever had. He sang his praises. In time, the two married. He inherited the farm. And here's the really interesting part of the anecdote. When Erickson grew up and was ready to go to college himself, um, 
most of the farmers around him tried to dissuade him. They, they thought that college would ruin him. He's a perfectly good farmer. And these, these city folk, well, they don't really know what life is about and they're going to ruin him. And they tried to dissuade him from, you know, losing yet another farmer to the big city draw, right? Bill, on the other hand, sat him down and said, listen, young man, um, you should go. And the reason you should go is because you need to, um, you need to expand your mind to expand your option and have a better life. If you want to come back, you can always come back. But you don't know if you can, you know, you don't know if you're coming back for the right reasons unless you've seen more of the world or learned more of the world. And I'm paraphrasing probably a much more complex conversation. But here's the big thing for me. The arch criminal of the piece became the hero. In fact, he became the mentor to the hero. Ericsson, I don't think, would have become Ericsson. He couldn't have become the Ericsson we know if he had stayed as a really interesting, quirky farmhand running in his own, or, 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 or farmer having his own uh, uh, farmland. The fact that he went off to college, became a doctor, psychiatrist, and then innovated all this hypnotic technique um, was on a, on a turning point. And that conversation with an arch criminal who had a better idea to aspire to, that of being a gentleman, that turned it all around. That to me is what generative change can do. When you can, when, when someone has an idea that inspires them, that alters the way they behave, they feel, they see the world systematically, that can be such a powerful thing when it's in the healthy sense. It can be a really destructive thing, of course, when it goes in the unhealthy direction too. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So to, I love the aspect though of setting something in motion and letting it continue. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It's yeah. the idea of the slow burning fuse, right? Yeah, which we wonderfully uh, can go back to that loop though of there you were in that, uh, in the training of law. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and if you've got a couple of moments here, I want to continue that story there sure. to bring it back into that uh, that scope of getting into all of this. Yeah. What was that next step for you? Where Where did the hypnosis then start to take back over, would you say? Okay, so, so at college is the time to experiment and so on. That's the bit where I really grew as a hypnotist. I, you know, I bought a few dodgy manuals uh, before college in my you know, 16, 17 years old. I had to scour mm -hmm. old bookstores for these. And these, by the way, these were pathetic manuals. These are the stuff that still had things like you've got to train your willpower by denying yourself things you want so that your inner power grows. And then when you look at someone and tell them, sleep, that 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 the, the that magical aura transfers onto it. It's very mesmerically paced, and and uh, well, yes. it's definitely not a path that I pursue further. At, at college, I uh, had two uh, advantages, well, three advantages. One is I was a bit older, I had a bit of cash. Um, uh, secondly, I had a ton of willing volunteers, lots of people, college students, as you well know, are some of the best hypnotic subjects because they're willing to experiment and find out, right? Um, and number three, I had access to an actual library where you know real hypnosis stuff would be there. I was in a university town, so finding hypnosis textbooks were a little bit easier. Still not very easy, but easy enough that I had my first few scripts that I could try out and so on. Um, so I tried that all throughout my university career, and I did really well with that, and I really enjoyed it. But then by the time I graduated, it was time to become a lawyer because, you know, I had to make an income, and I had no idea how to do this. So, you know, after uh, four years of law my mind was already constantly being massaged towards being a lawyer, right? Um, of all the people in my, my peer group, right? I think about, um, 
I don't know, 60 to 70% of them became lawyers of one type or another. In other words, uh, barristers or solicitors. Uh, There's a split profession in the UK, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And about, uh, I don't know, 20% or so want to go into banking, uh, starting with a lawyer and then going into like a, uh, some kind of merchant banking or capital finance, something like that. It was a very typical transition. And about 10% of people had no idea what they wanted to do. I lost track with them. I have no idea. They may have become dishwashers or I don't know what. Um, <laughs> The, the, the point is, it, it kind of steers you in a certain direction. And it's the direction I definitely took up. I ended up working for a law firm. Um, it's a, a magic circle firm, so one of the top firms in the UK. Uh, I used hypnosis to prepare myself for the interviews and so on. So I definitely punched a little bit above my league and uh, was very fortunate to get the, the job that I did. And then for the next uh, three years or so, law was my thing, right? Uh, and as far as I was concerned, I put the hypnosis tools aside again. I thought I might use them as a little bit as a to give me an edge to make partnership and so on more quickly. But I was dedicated to being a lawyer. Let's fast forward a year in. A year in, uh, all the schmoozing is over. In other words, the golden handshakes, the parties, the, the welcome to the law firm. Look how amazing life's about to be. Have more alcohol. Have more free stuff here. You know, that all dried up within the first couple of months. And then the hard slog began. And um, after about a year or so, I noticed that uh, a really interesting phenomenon. Um, I I wasn't seeing my regular friends anymore because my hours were crazy. You know, I was working till 10 o'clock at night, most nights. Um, Working till three or four in the morning was relatively routine. I'd do that at least once or twice a week. Um, Two out of four weekends were spent at the law firm. So this was a, this demanded a lot of my energy, a lot of my time, a lot of my life. And the only people I started mm-hmm. hanging out with were other lawyers because they were on the same schedule as me, right? If I wanted to get a drink with someone, I had to go to drink with someone who was currently as busy and just had to slip it in the same times that I did or whatever it might be, right? Um, so after about a year of this, I got really frustrated with this. I started thinking, do I love law enough to want to live like this? In other words, to live like this, you have to love it so much that you get all your life needs fulfilled from that space. And for me, that wasn't the case. So then I started thinking about back on my hypnosis days, my college days, really, about what are the things I enjoyed doing. Uh, one of them was martial arts, but I, I couldn't do that as a lawyer. I just couldn't, I couldn't practice. You know, there's no, no dojo that's open at 10 p.m. at night that you can get a quick workout in before going to bed. <laughs> Nor was there any dojos I knew of that were open at 6 a.m. that you get your workout in before going to work. Uh, they do exist in Japan, but not in, in uh, the U.K., um, so that was out. So then I came across the idea of hypnosis. And that's when I took my training more seriously. I, I had now a bit more cash, so I could actually afford to pay for trainings. And um, initially, I had enrolled in like a weekend course, like one weekend a month for a year, just to have something non-law related to get my head around, right? And I really enjoyed my time there. It wasn't the best course. Uh, academically, it was pretty strong. Um, technically, in terms of what they could do, is a little bit on the weak side. They weren't uh, they couldn't live up to what they were talking about as easily, if you see what I mean. Um, but it, was, it still was enough to get the, the, my, the, the bug bear for me. And then I spent the next year and a half after that basically using up all of my holiday time, all my weekend times. Basically, any spare moment I had, I was doing hypnosis. So I was either doing law or I was doing hypnosis. It got so intense that at one point I went to my friend's, I think it was, uh, uh, I can't remember, it was his 25th birthday party, something like that. We were up all night drinking and partying or whatever until, you know, uh, four or five in the morning when everyone crashed out. And then at 6.30, so I literally had about two hours sleep. 
At 6.30, I woke up again, got up, got myself ready. I was still in my tuxedo from the big party to turn up at my <laughs> hypnosis event. You know, I, 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 when I say it wasn't very glamorous, I turned up stinking of, of alcohol and, and, and everyone else's cigarettes. And, you know, it, 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 I was clearly a mess, but I still turned up to do my thing because that I found it enjoyable and it gave me an, a, a, a break from the whole legal side of things and so on. Uh, and after about, you know, now going to, you know, the first year is just law. The second two years are doing this. So then I decided, you know what? I'm getting so much more satisfaction out of hypnosis than out of my legal career. I need to really think about uh, changing tracks. So I thought about it very carefully, ended up resigning, worked my notice, so six months of notice. And then after um, three and a half years, roughly, as a lawyer, I left again to set up shop on my own. And that's when the... Uh, the next crazy leg of the adventure began. I love it. I love it. And we've covered so much ground here that I'd love to have you back on sometime in the future to sure. talk about how we learn this. I love the aspects of, again, bringing back in the silence, bringing back in that mindset of being in the moment with the client mm. and making sure that change is moving so much further beyond um, than even perhaps what they've even consciously considered what's right. possible. Right. Thank you. And I'd be delighted to have you be back here again. Just let me know sometime in the new year and uh, we'll figure something out. Absolutely. And I know you're easy to track down, but where's the best place, place that people can go to learn more about your work online? Thank you. So, so play, easiest places, uh, Hypnosis Training Academy is our, 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 our company, if you like. So www.hypnosistrainingacademy.com. All one big long word, real simple. We have uh, hundreds, if not thousands of articles on there by now. A couple of freebies. Uh, basically, if you, if you like the kind of way I approach work, that's a place you'll find uh, uh, pretty much all the other things that I do from. Outstanding. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation today. Jason Lynette here. And as always, especially this time around, thank you so much for joining me on this program, for sharing it online, leaving your reviews and uh, everything good you do concerning the uh, Fifty Shades of Purple brand of work smart hypnosis. I'd reference uh, two things for you to check out. First of all, again, head over to worksmarthypnosis.com forward slash Igor, I-G-O-R. Head over to that specific page, and that's going to give you the opportunity to get full access to the three-part interview series where Igor interviewed me. Then also, join me in Las Vegas at Hypnotic Products, Tuesday and Wednesday after HypnoThoughts Live 2018, August 28th and 29th. You're going to learn how to design, launch, market, and promote and profit from your own hypnotic products. It's a live, hands-on, interactive course, and you will leave with the blueprint to go out there and create your own high-quality hypnotic products. Check it out, hypnoticproducts.com. Keep listening. Let's make another 150 of these. Sound good? See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast at worksmarthypnosis.com.